Welcome back to the podcast from Madison's First Baptist Church. You know, Madison's First Baptist Church was established in 1841. We're still here. Through a lot of changes, through circumstances that have included wars and economic boon times and depressions, through the change of the community in such a way, and the the community is still changing now. Uh, Recently, uh, we have had a great controversy in Madison about the efficacy of inviting a casino to occupy a spot on Highway uh, 220. And it uh, looks like it's going to happen, although we won't know for sure until the legislature makes their decision, however they make that decision. All I'm trying to say by that is that the community is ever-changing. The demands for ministry are ever-present and will be going on into the future. And the church that is positioned to welcome by grace, everyone into its congregation, I think is going to be the church that will best represent our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it sounds an awful lot like a sermon. Let me get into this sermon today. This is called Escape, uh, Escaping Egypt. And uh, this particular message is for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, the passage from which I'll be speaking is Exodus 12, verses 1 through 14. Let me read that passage. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn 
in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. There are two reasons why the focus of my sermons is now upon the stories from Genesis and Exodus. The first reason should be more than obvious. The Old Testament, more properly referred to as the Hebrew Scriptures, are an important part of our faith heritage. We are believers in a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, who taught a perspective on Judaism that eventually became known as Christianity or the way of following Jesus. Even though most of us are not Racially Jewish, we believe that through Christ, we have been grafted into the family of God. This happens according to Jesus and the early founders of our religion. This happens through faith. We are welcomed even though we were strangers, aliens, outsiders. The second reason we should pay renewed attention to the story of faith of our faith heritage is because it is a story that continues to teach God's children. In a time when there is significant pressure upon the people who are genuinely and sincerely trying to follow Jesus, we can be comforted and inspired by the formative narratives of our faith. This is not some dead old story to be regarded as a quaint fable with no meaning for our present realities. It is, in fact, more of an idea, a reminder of what our faith is meant to be about. And part of that faith is a story of escape from Egypt. Egypt for us is not a place, but a state of being. It is feeling captive to the forces of evil that inhibit inhibit our true freedom as children of God. Try and think on that as I share with you this part of the story of Moses and the Hebrew nation. You might recall the practice, really the honor bestowed on some who nearing graduation from high school were voted most likely to succeed. I'm not sure they still do that, but here is a true story of the opposite. They shared the least likely to succeed stigma at their alma mater, the Pasadena Playhouse, a renovated burlesque stage that has a history of financial difficulties. It doesn't seem to have bothered them, one of them now says. We fully expected to be failures for our entire life. Of course, failure was not in the cards. At the Academy Awards in 1968, the two were in attendance as nominees. Gene Hackman for Best Supporting Actor and Dustin Hoffman for Best Actor. They've been two of the most prolific and accomplished actors in Hollywood ever since. Exodus tells the story of another one voted least likely to succeed. He struggled with a stutter perhaps considered a defect in Pharaoh's court. He was frustrated with 
The injustice he saw and acted violently, perhaps because he couldn't communicate well enough. The quiet life in Midian was without much pressure. Yet God calls him to return to Egypt, persuade Pharaoh to release the Israelites as well as lead the Israelites into an unknown future. God helps Moses through a series of natural disasters or plagues, each of which is an undermining of the theology of Egypt. The final plague is the most terrible and hardest to understand. In preparation, God instructs the children of Israel to have a special meal, identify with him, and get ready to go. I want you to know God works through you and with you in spite of your limitations. The Bible says the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron, Aaron spoke when Moses was unable. It says in Exodus, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past and since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Speech impediment. A self-image carved by guilt and a deep embedded fear of failure, embarrassment and punishment. God's confidence in Moses, though, does not change. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? He gave him his brother to help him. Most preachers, at least those worth their salt, fully understand what Moses felt. The act of preaching is a daunting task. There are two motifs in preaching. To comfort, comfort ye my people, and to challenge, or another word is to prophesy, thus saith the Lord. The third motif is mentioned in Scripture but never endorsed by God. In fact, these preachers are condemned as false prophets, blind guides, and whitewashed tombs, impressive on the outside, but full of death. These preachers say what will get them ahead in life. They are usually very popular in their ministry setting. When preachers refuse to touch on social issues, they often are trying to protect their popularity. These same preachers want to divide the gospel message from touchy issues by calling such concerns the social gospel while too often stressing hot, often stressing hot button issues. They say so little about what God says and so much about what God says so little. Nevertheless, to preach prophetically demands risk. Preachers who do this might lose support. They might be asked to leave or driven out on a rail. George Williamson, a graduate of Wake Forest Divinity School in 1961, said it well. Prophetic preaching is the exact opposite of every fundraising and church growth scheme. How then does any preacher stand up against such pressure? Or for that matter, how does anyone do justice and mercy demanded by the gospel? The answer is plain. God helps us by sending special ones to stand by our side. Who has God sent to be your Aaron when you need a friend? 
Who might you be an errand for? Who might be an errand for you? Look around this church family and perhaps you will exclaim along with me, we really do need each other. The next thing to keep in mind is this. Your faith community has some surprising members. Moses was instructed, tell the whole congregation of Israel. Who were the whole congregation of Israel? A common assumption, all Hebrews, is that all Hebrews were direct descendants of Jacob. After all, they are called the children of Israel. There is, though, a good argument that the word Hebrew is derived from an ancient word used to describe an entire social class. That word is Habiru or Apiru. This may prove to be an important piece of information because there are some who think that the story of Moses and the exodus of the Hebrew people has no historical validity. You may even hear that, but that is far from accurate. Robert Wolfe writes, for 100 years, archaeologists have been unearthing clay tablets in the Middle East which reference a group of people variously described as Habiru or Apeiru in the scholarly literature. Hundreds of such references were found, all dating from the second millennium B.C. None of these clay tablets discussed the Habiru at length, but rather made reference to them in passing in some larger context. Sometimes the Habiru were described as mercenaries, other times as day laborers, yet other times as bandits. The biblical scholars were in general agreement that the reality behind these different descriptions was that of bands of armed men, most of them fugitives, who camped on the outskirts of the more uh, settled areas and made a living as best they could. References to such Habiru bands were found in many different parts of the Middle East, making it clear that they did not constitute a tribe or a nation, but rather a social class, one that was generally viewed by the scribes who mentioned them with a mixture of fear and contempt. Now, please remember this. The term Habiru was also applied to escaped slaves. This is important because it gives a whole new way to think about the whole congregation of Israel. They were not exclusively congregated by bloodlines. There was a diversity of ideas and backgrounds among the people held in Egyptian slavery. Their unity was primarily driven by their mutual need to be delivered from oppression. Who are the people of God today? I'm not trying to impress you with my knowledge, although I'd like you to think I know a thing or two. What I want you to see is the meaning, the message of the Bible. In this particular passage, there is the first occurrence of the Hebrew word edah. It is translated as congregation. Edah means more than a collection of human beings. It is the difference between describing the fans gathered in a football stadium and the football team. One is gathered out of interest and the other because of purpose. And it is that purpose that brings unity out of diversity. The Bible from cover to cover describes God's people, the whole congregation, as a diversity 
brought together by a mutual need. That need is God's grace. Once long ago, as I worshiped at Wake Chapel at Wake Forest University, I noticed who was in that congregation. They were black and white, people in suits and others in shorts, both men and women, gay and straight, rich and poor, conservative and liberal. Some sported Rolex watches on their arms. Some had Timex watches and some had the most amazing tattoos. Some were financially comfortable. Others were struggling to put the next meal on their table and gas in their car so they could attend class. There were young and old, the young who think old and the old who think young. And that was just the diversity I could observe on the surface that day. The point I got from that is this. What has always joined God's people together is grace. Grace-filled people are connected by a fierce commitment to the justice of God and His mercy that unifies even a diverse people who are in mutual need. Now here's another lesson we take from this story. God's judgment is always aimed at the things that hold us in bondage. God said, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Each of the ten plagues that afflicted Egypt carried a powerful message. To the Egyptians, it signaled punishment for their gross injustices toward the immigrants in their country. Their unjust actions included cruelty, bigotry, slavery, even the murder of their children. To the Jews, it was the final push they needed to leave a land of plenty for a desert wilderness and to stop fearing the false power of the Egyptians' gods. You see, in reality, these gods had no power. Who were these gods? How did the Lord expose their impotence to all the people, both Egyptians and Hebrews? In the first plague, Nile water is turned into blood by Moses' God. He challenges three gods. Their names, Knum, Hapi, and Osiris, Osiris. Of them it was believed that Gnum was the guardian of the river's source. Hapi, the spirit of the Nile, and Osiris, the Nile, was his bloodstream. In the second plague were frogs. A frog goddess called Hek was the goddess of Egypt. The third plague was lice. That challenged Seb, the god of the ground. Lice plagued them from the soil. If it was, it was as if God, the real God, was demonstrating how meaningless the puny gods of the Egyptians were, but he did not end there. The fourth plague is flies. And it challenged Utit. He was the fly god of Egypt. The fifth plague was disease on the cattle. That challenged Ta, Memphis, Athor, Amun. Egyptian gods associated with bulls and cows. In the sixth plague, there were boils on the skins of the people. That challenged Shekmet. Egyptian goddess of epidemics. It also challenged Seraphis and Imhotep, Egyptian gods of healing. The bad days, though, continued with the seventh plague of hail. This challenged Nut, Egyptian sky goddess, and Shu, Egyptian god of the atmosphere. It also challenged Isis and Seth, Egyptian agricultural deities. Remember, the hail nearly destroyed Egypt's harvest. 
Those were bad days in Egypt, but they grew worse. In the eighth plague, locusts ravaged the land. This challenged Seraphah, Egyptian deity protected from locusts, protector from locusts. The locusts finished off what the hail didn't ruin. The second to the last was the ninth plague, darkness. It challenged more than one Egyptian god, Re, Amun, Re, Aten, Atum, and Horus, all considered Egyptian sun gods. It is the final plague which is the subject of today's text. It is the most terrible and most important one to understand. It is the death of the firstborn males. Now in the ancient language, also called the destroyer, this plague brings death to all. But God gives a way of escape. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The tenth plague. Directly challenged the Pharaoh himself. You see, he too was considered a god. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh had killed the sons of Israel. Now in startling reversal, Pharaoh no longer has the authority over or power over life and death. It is Hebrew, the Hebrews' God prerogative and his power that determines life and death. What happens on Passover and why is important to understand. Even to this day, Jewish children ask, why is this night different from all others? This story is a favorite target for those who desire to label God as cruel. The truth is far different. The closest translation to describe the force that killed the firstborn males in Egypt is destroyer. In Egypt, in in Jeremiah 2.30, the same word is used to describe a ravenous lion. It was the culmination of all that plagued Egypt in those calamitous days. Here is a list of the impacts it had and how these led to the final plague. The water supply was compromised. Disease ensued. Then the food supply was threatened. Rationing most likely occurred. Firstborn males, both people and animals, were fed first, according to Egyptian priorities and belief. And there is a clue here that something went wrong with the food supply. Those who ate first and perhaps only died. On the other hand, God instructs his people to do something else. Listening to God made all the difference. Everyone, even the Egyptians, had a choice to make. God instructs the people who believed in him to feed everyone in their homes, to consume a lavish, protein-rich diet. Lamb was very costly. Lamb would have an ongoing biblical significance. Remember the proclamation about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The meal was to be generous. They were told to eat all of it. Everyone was invited. They were told to share with their neighbors who could not obtain a lamb. The meal was to be eaten in haste. McDonald's didn't invent fast food. God did. They were to be prepared to move on. It was soon time to leave Egypt. Decision time was upon them. The final thing they were to do was to mark their doorways with the lamb's blood. That meant two things. It was to identify them as believers and the God of Jacob. This also announced that they no longer honored the Egyptian gods, not even a little bit. To escape the destroyer, they had to change what they did on the inside and then announce it on the outside. What are the lessons we can take from this important story from Hebrew history? 
God knows your weaknesses, but will provide you the strength, often through the help of a friend, to do His will. The church is composed of a diverse people who draw together by a mutual need of God's grace. God will ultimately destroy all the false gods in justice, fear, death, just to name a few, that hold us in bondage. And finally this, the salvation God provides will come through the Lamb. Jesus is that Lamb. He changes you on the inside. On the outside, you identify with Him. Escape from your Egypt. Trust Him to save you and guide you out of bondage and fear. Let us pray. Oh God, so well we know what it is like to live in fear, in fear of darkness. So many things plague our existence. False gods bearing different names have perplexed us for too long. We long for freedom. We long for escape. We long for freedom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to do just that for us. In you, we will be saved from destruction. May we never be ashamed to identify with you and the price you paid to free us. Amen.